the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, my friends, and your eyes do not deceive you. If you're watching on the video right now, I am not Dinesh D'Souza, who has gone some sort of experimental skin whitening treatment like Michael Jackson. No, my name is Kyle Serafin, and I'm a former FBI agent and an FBI whistleblower. You may have seen me on the movie Police State. I sat next to Dinesh, and we exposed some of the criminal malfeasance that has been going on inside our weaponized federal government. Now, uh, this week, I'm going to be taking the reins. Dinesh and Debbie have taken the time off. They're getting prepped for a big 2024. Many of you guys have that instinct, too. 2024 is going to be pretty lit. And uh, in anticipation of that, they're taking a deep breath, stepping away, and they've given me the reins. So look forward to an excellent week where we're going to be talking to people who've experienced weaponized government and who are exposing weaponized government. You can uh, look forward to today's show with Matt Taibbi. He's one of the founding journalists that went in and got after the Twitter files, which was one of the first seams kind of ripped open for us to see what's going on underneath the censorship apparatus and what does weaponized federal government really mean. You can follow my podcast on Rumble at rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. And you can also find us on, on the audio platforms by just searching my name, Kyle Serafin. You've probably seen me with Dinesh on some of the other shows. You may have seen me on Dan Bongino's podcast. This one we're going to do all week. So stick around for all four episodes and let's take a look at what the police state uses and who the police state targets. This is the Dinesh D'Souza show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Folks, as promised, we're going to be bringing on Matt Taibbi, who is an independent journalist who helped expose the Twitter files. Now, the more I travel around the country, the more I realize that even though I live and eat and breathe all of the garbage that is weaponized government. It's not necessarily the thing that all of you wake up and think about. Uh, you have other important things to do, like go to work and make a living and maybe make your kids dinner. Maybe you're still cleaning up after the holidays. So today we're going to give you a little taste of something that is absolutely terrifying. There's almost no other way to say it. The Twitter files were one of the first looks at the mechanized apparatus sitting behind the curtain that the federal government was used to censor and change election outcomes and public opinion. The, this kind of goes back to what happened in November of 2022. So we're now one year away. We're looking back in retrospective and we're seeing a couple of crazy things happen. Number one, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, put billions of his own dollars, over $40 billion, to buy a platform that seemed like it was losing money. That platform he envisioned as being the town hall and the public square for people to come out and have active and reasonable discourse. But like so many conservatives experienced, and I think Elon Musk saw the Babylon Bee, a conservative satire site, experienced, the throttling and the way that that data was being manipulated in real time and the way that it was actually being uh, used to change the opinion of our public concerned him. And so he got involved on November the 28th of 2022. He actually finalized the, the purchase of this. He bought Twitter. And then he did something that nobody does. He said, here's my brand new toy. Here's my brand new car. I'm going to throw the keys to a couple of investigative journalists and see if they can ride the tires off this thing. And they did. He let them in behind the curtain, probably against the advice of many attorneys, which we're going to find out of exactly what that looked like from one of the men who did it. And they just started digging. He said, your gumshoes your blue collar type, um, you know, original OG investigative journalist, you want to go find the story. I'm going to give you the biggest story in this country right now. And I'm going to let you look. Now, nobody else is doing this, by the way. The reason the Twitter files are so interesting is because they're unique. You didn't see the Google files 
and you didn't see the YouTube files or anyone else saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you just come into our house? We're going to go step outside of the porch and see what kind of things you could do. That's actually what the federal government does. That's what my job used to be as a federal agent. We take you outside and then we go look through all your stuff and we find out what crimes you've committed. But Elon Musk took this bold step because number one, he bought all the liabilities of it, but he also wanted to clean his house. And the second thing is, is that he was trying to live up to the principles. I think we can we can agree on that. Whether you like Elon Musk, whether you think he's the savior of humanity, or whether you think he's sitting out there and ready to uh, put an implant in all of your brains, which obviously is one of the technologies he's working on, regardless of how you feel about the man, the the contribution of forty four billion dollars to even the lip service of free speech. And Twitter has its problems, no doubt about it. They've been describing it as a layer cake or a a tiramisu where the layers kind of bleed between each other and the code is apparently disastrous. But he was able to clean house, get rid of an incredible amount of people from the staff, and they're slowly making it a bigger and bigger free speech platform. Now, those of us who have been on the the growth end of things, because I actually only joined Twitter just after, just before uh, Elon Musk bought it. So I've experienced growth that many conservatives never get to see. It takes them years and years to build a platform. I've got over 100,000 followers on there, and I've only been doing this for a year. And for what it's worth, I hate social media. I don't even want to be on social media. It's one of those necessary evils if you're going to go out there. I use it literally to keep the FBI from knocking down my door because they know that I'll live stream it. And there's, there, there's a power in this sort of thing. But the, the fact that the man went out there and opened his dirty laundry drawer and let people that he didn't know... And you'll hear about this in just a second. Like he didn't even know these people. It's not like he had a long personal relationship with them and they had all these these uh, shackles. They opened it up much to the chagrin of the attorneys. And what we also found out was that the the embedded number of people who we will call deep state operatives or administrate oper- administrative state operatives um, is is shocking. It's actually quite incredible. There are so many people that have come out of either the CIA, the NSA and the FBI to go and take up jobs in all of these data companies. You think that the product is social media so you could share information. In reality, how are they making money? They're making money by selling off your data, your behaviors, and targeting you with ads, which isn't necessarily a bad deal. Nobody should be scared of that. But the idea that all of that data is housed somewhere, it is disconcerting that the people that are inside of our federal government, the intelligence services, that spend all of their time dealing in information and data have found the biggest depositories that actually make the federal government blush with how efficient and capable they are of grabbing it. It's worth noting that when you hear people talk about the information industrial complex or the censorship industrial complex, we're talking about actors within the administrative state who work in the intelligence community that are used to using data for power. Every single industrial complex uses something for power whether it be military might or financial needs, or in this case, data, when they have this and they're using this kind of thing for power, it should scare the living hell out of you. And we're going to bring on somebody who was the first man behind the curtain to kind of look into it and have him explain to us not only what he discovered, but where he's seen this type of power and this kind of abuse before. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. It's the second day of Christmas. Yeah, that's right. It was first the partridge and a pear tree. Now we're on to two turtle doves. What's better than two turtle doves? How about the gift of feeling good again? Here's an idea. Try Relief Factor. It's the gift that helps people relieve pain and feel good once again. Seems pretty straightforward. Relief Factor is a daily supplement that helps your body fight back against pain. 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for an alternative to pain medication. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3s that my wife's always trying to sneak into my smoothies to help reduce or eliminate everyday aches and pains that you might be experiencing. Whether it's neck, back, joint, muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. And unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short period of time, Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation. So you'll feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you with their three-week quick start program. It's under $20, only $19.95, and it comes with the Relief Factor Feel Better or your money-back guarantee. So why not give it a try? ReliefFactor.com, there's two Fs in there, or call 1-800-4-RELIEF. That's 1-800-THE-NUMBER-4-RELIEF. When you feel the difference, you know it works. 
So we're joined by Matt Taibbi, a so-called journalist, according to members of uh, Congress who are not necessarily that friendly, although theoretically would be part of the same party that he grew up in. Um, I want to talk to him about the Twitter files today. You guys, we're going to have uh, some of you may not even know the work that he's been doing, which is so important over at Racket, his independent organization. And I uh, just want to welcome you. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Uh, and thanks for all your advice in the last year, too. Kind of on the sly, kind of keeping that on the DL, trying not to tell people about that, but we'll keep doing it. Let's uh, let's talk about who you are as a person. You were called a so-called journalist, but you're an award-winning journalist, and you've been doing this for quite a long time. Can you kind of give people just kind of the bullet points of your career and, and why they might know your name? Sure. So my father, uh, Mike Taibbi, was a, a journalist for 50 years. He, he worked uh, primarily in Boston. Then he moved to New York, was a local TV reporter there, then, was, uh, then worked for NBC Dateline for many years. Uh, so I grew up. Um, in the journalism business, he started when he was 18. He had me when I was two. So, uh, when he, uh, just two years later. So I grew up in newsrooms, um, didn't want to go into journalism, uh, but I had no other skills. So I ended up there anyway, uh, spent the first part of my career in the former Soviet union, uh, was there for almost 12 years where I had my own newspaper there. Then came back, worked for Rolling Stone for, uh, 15 years, Spent a lot of that time covering finance after the 2008 crash, and now most recently, you know, I think I've been spending most of my you know, last two or three years on this digital censorship issue, which culminates in the Twitter files. Perfect, perfect. And so we saw that um, Elon Musk bought Twitter in late November of last year, and we are now one year out from him giving you some kind of groundbreaking access. Um, did you ever imagine when you said, yes, I'll come out to San Francisco and look at whatever he was going to show you, that you'd be sitting in front of Congress and testifying about it. No, the whole thing has been so completely surreal from the beginning to end. Uh, someday it's going to make a really funny book, I think. But the beginning of that story is, you know, I, I got invited to San Francisco, went from not knowing the man to meeting the richest person in the world, like within two days. And I'm in this completely surreal meeting where he's just saying, yeah, well, you know, you can go in and look at whatever you want. And there's a lawyer there with this ashen uh, look on their face and saying, you don't mean everything, like not the privileged stuff. And he's like, ah, you know, whatever. And that was it. You know, basically we, we ended up having almost no supervision for a, the better part of a month uh, looking through files. And that was when we got most of the stuff and they didn't, they didn't know what we were going to find, I don't think. And we had no idea either. And it was it was really bizarre. You talk about the risk that that is that Elon sort of just assumed by letting you guys free to look through his dirty laundry. Yeah, I mean, that was what there's a reason why this doesn't happen. Why why people who come into, you know, the head major corporations don't just willy nilly let investigative reporters rummage through their stuff because God knows what they'll find. I mean, there, there's stuff about ongoing litigation in there. Uh, there's all kinds of things that if, if we had decided to pursue it and air out some of this dirty laundry, there was liability that might have been there. People might have filed all kinds of lawsuits. I, he sort of just trusted that we were going to look in a direction that wasn't that. Uh, and even so, you know, I think they, they might have ended up in some trouble anyway because of the stuff we published. So it was, it's a one in a billion thing. I've, every journalist I've talked to said this is the kind of thing that just doesn't happen. There's no analog in American history to this. The, uh, the, the concept of journalistic ethics, I think, has kind of uh, taken a backseat in the last couple of years. I grew up around newsrooms as well. My dad was a, a news guy and, and used to run um, newsrooms in San Francisco and things like that and in Dallas as uh, AM radio. So my question is always this. It kind of used to be a blue collar profession to do investigative journalism. Can you talk about sort of the shift that we've seen in America and maybe why he thought you guys were the right guys to do it? Sure. You're absolutely right. Um, when my father got into journalism in the late 60s, journalism was more of a trade than a profession. You, you went into journalism, it was much more likely that you were the son or daughter more typically, this does, frankly, but, uh, but more, more, you're more likely to be to, have, to come from a family of plumbers uh, or, you know, airline pilots, some, somebody from the military. There were lots of uh, children of cops who went into uh, journalism. And it, it was it was very much kind of a working class or middle class profession that was instinctively mistrustful 
of authority and rich people and politicians. I mean, I, I just remember every newsroom I was ever in, there were always like posters of politicians that were just in, instantly defaced as soon as they were put up on, on the wall. And it, it, most newsrooms were like comedy clubs. You know, there, there was just lots of wisecracking going on. It was a very, you know, sort of a renegade kind of outlaw uh, vibe to it. And then I think after All the President's Men is when people like me started appearing in, in the business. You know, so upper middle class kids who had grown up and thought it was a sexy job. And by the time I got into it in the mid 90s, it was almost entirely Ivy League people who were at the top of the profession. And that was totally new. And that's why there's been this dramatic change, I think, because it's, it's the perspective that's different. The people who are in journalism now they're the same people socially as the people they're supposed to be covering. And that was never true before, but it is true now. Um, you're a pretty secular guy. Is that accurate? You're not a religious person? Yeah, not anymore. I grew up Catholic. but not- Fair enough. When I look at the way that it's done right now, it's almost like the people coming out of journalism school, which they will call J school, which even has its own kind of thing, right? It's almost like a seminary where people are stepping into a priesthood. And uh, my father talks about this, having seen that transition, saying, you know, now they're kind of like anointed. And it's like, oh, ominous, dominus, go out there and practice journalism. And what you say can be the arbiter of truth. Do you think there's any kind of weight to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there there is a there's very much this sort of belief in a credentialing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The people who are in the business now, m- most old school journalists would tell you, you don't need to go to J school. This this job isn't about that. You can learn the whole thing in three days. It's just about asking questions. And, you know, you have to, le- you have, to have some kind of communication skills. You know, you have to know how to write. Uh, but it's not that complicated. J school is really about the whole credentialing process. Do you have um, a degree from Columbia University? If you do have the degree from Columbia University, uh, do you have professors who are going to recommend you get the right internship at the at the right uh, organization? My father always told me, don't bother with journalism school. So I didn't. I just, I worked at demolition, waited tables, saved some money and went to Russia and just started doing the job uh, and selling articles, which I think is is a much easier way to do it. But now it's, yeah, it, it's very much like a priesthood and, and, uh, it's unfortunate because they, you know, we can get into this too, but I saw the way that behavior uh, manifested itself very specifically on the campaign trail, which is the, the first big assignment I had in the States when I came back. So, um, you know, they believe they have the right to decide for people, all kinds of things that are really important. That, that seems to be kind of that, that enforcing an orthodoxy and we're seeing it in the intelligence community too so you know that's my background that's what i got to see is that people who have studied together tend to think the same way they tend to kind of move along that route and so we've seen journalists do the same thing where not only are they arbiters but they all kind of have lockstep um how does that compare when you look at what's going on today with the sort of maybe non-state media but they seem to be very state um supporting and oh. what you saw when you were in russia how does that you know do you see sort of that that commonality yeah, and this is really interesting because, um, you know, I, I'm old enough, believe it or not, to have studied in the Soviet Union. So I was there at the very tail end. I, I was a student of the Russian language because I loved Russian books. So I wanted to learn Russian. When I got there, um, I noticed this really bizarre phenomenon, which was that Russia uh, as a society, it was, it was a a state that had laws, but nobody paid attention to the laws because they were totally meaningless. They, they, you know, they gave you all kinds of rights in the constitution, but you couldn't exercise them. So the whole concept of how people lived is they abided by unwritten rules. And in every conceivable interaction, you were constantly doing these calculations. Can I say this thing to this person? Am I allowed to let this person know that I have dollars, which is illegal? Um, is this a person uh, who is allowed to wear black market clothes in public, like a party member, or is it a person who's going to get arrested for doing that? I mean, it was like this two-tiered kind of society. And in the Soviet era, journalists were in that upper tier. They were allowed to be rule breakers and jerks be- uh, who had special accommodations, like they had a, uh, a club that had very nice food that other people couldn't get. But they had to lie constantly. Like the, the, the job was totally meaningless. You were writing these 
idiotic articles all the time, but they were a club. What's so interesting is that as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia produced unbelievable uh, investigative journalism for about 10 years before Putin locked it down. Uh, but it was all kept behind closed doors in the Soviet period. And there are a lot of parallels, I think, to um, the current situation where you know, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, the, the, their reporters may as well be partners of state agencies, the FBI, you know, the CIA. They, they act like they're basically on the same team, which is totally opposite to what the mission is. One would think that. Yeah, I want to get deeper into that right after the break. We're going to talk about that. We're talking to Matt Taibbi, who is an independent journalist, and he runs Racket, which is an outstanding Substack. You guys should check out. I am, uh, I've been privy to a subscription for the last year, and there's outstanding stuff on there. So we'll get back to that right after the break here. Folks, if you watch this podcast, if you watch the Dinesh D'Souza show, you know that Debbie and Dinesh had a New Year's resolution to lose weight, and thankfully, PhD weight loss came to the rescue. Debbie has already lost 24 pounds. Dinesh lost 27. Now they're just both on the maintenance program. I saw them in Houston when we shot Police State. They both look fantastic. And they're both slowly shrinking out of their clothes, which is probably very expensive on the wardrobe ad. The program is based on science and nutrition. There's no injections. There's no pills, no hours in the gym, especially if you're really busy. That's helpful. No severe calorie restrictions, just good, sound, scientifically proven nutrition. It's so simple. They make it easy by providing 80% of your food at no cost. And then they tell you what and when to eat. Guess what? You could do without being hungry. The founder, Dr. Ashley Lucas, has her PhD in chronic disease and sports nutrition, and she's a registered dietitian. She helps people lose weight and, most importantly, maintain that weight loss for life. That's really the critical part, if you can maintain it. If you're ready to take the step of losing weight, like the D'Souza's have, call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition at 864-644-1900. Or you can find them online. It's all one word, my PhD weightloss.com my phd weightloss.com again the phone number is 864-644-1900 give him a call so we're talking to matt taibbi who was one of the original journalists to break open the story of the twitter files and i want to get into that right now because we're talking about the analogs between the soviet union we're talking about what we're seeing in america it's not nearly as formalized a relationship maybe you can kind of talk about what you guys started seeing as you peel back the curtain there yeah, so when we went into the Twitter files, we were thinking maybe we might find like a couple of letters about something like the Hunter Biden laptop story from some organization like the FBI. We actually didn't find anything about that story, which was direct. But then we started to see emails that said things like flagged by FBI, flagged by DHS, flagged by HHS, flagged by Treasury. Um, and they were, they were all about um, this was all during the period running up to the election. And we started to find, you know, hundreds of these emails. Sometimes they would be attached to Excel spreadsheets that had thousands or hundreds or thousands of account names on them. And they would come with a sort of form letter, uh, you know, piece of text on them that would say, we think that these accounts may violate your terms of service. You may at your own discretion choose to take action. Uh, and we subsequently found out that there was a regular system of meetings between all the biggest tech companies and the FBI, DHS, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and a formalized system of funneling these flag notices uh, that came from internally in the states that went through DHS, federal through the FBI. They had a whole bureaucracy of content flagging that we discovered it took us about three or four weeks to figure it out, but it was all there. It was mind blowing. What was that? What was that sort of um, emotional feeling? Cause you go in expecting maybe we'll find something and you didn't find something. It's like uh, it's like someone digging into a little uh, piece of, of dirt and then opening up a hole and underneath it is like a, is a cavern. You had an entire sort of apparatus that was available and it was all available to you. What, what was that sensation, that emotion like? It's it's amazing, you know. As a journalist, if you work thirty years or thirty five years, you might once or twice in your career get a real rush of like, "Wow, I'm really onto something." In this case, there was no question. I mean, I, the only thing I can compare it to is is a scene in a movie, which was you know from all the president's men when 
Bob Woodward was at the arraignment for the Watergate burglars, and he he hears the last uh, of the burglars um, when asked well, his employment history, say Central Intelligence Agency, and he realizes like his brain does all the math in a second, and he realizes, oh my god, like this is a huge story. That's what kind of what happened to us in like the third or fourth day of this. We started to realize that these were not anomalous uh, communications. We started to find letters where Twitter employees were talking, were sort of joking about how the FBI and DHS were their partners. Um, and yeah, at that point, we didn't know what to do because we we didn't know um, how to characterize what we were looking at. It, there was again, there was no analog to this kind of story, but certainly it was an adrenaline rush, and in in some ways, we're all still on it. I think. Makes a lot of sense. The other question I have, because very few people have actually done the thing you did, which was practice journalism behind the Iron Curtain, experience what it looks like to really be in an authoritarian type state. Now you're seeing some of that apparatus, you know, that nobody else can see. Was there any fear involved as you guys started to go forward? A little bit. Uh, you know, I, I knew journalists in Russia. I a couple of the people who I knew during my time there um, are no longer with us, you know, got murdered uh, after after Putin took power, but there were attacks even while I, um, during the Yeltsin years. And so I always had a healthy appreciation of the difference between what, what American journalists go through and what they, people go through in the third world. You know, you're not going to get shot in your doorway or, or killed by a poison telephone, which is something that happened to a reporter in Russia. Uh, but you know, this stuff was explosive. We knew that the intelligence agencies and the FBI in particular they were not going to be happy. They made statements to that effect, uh, you know, denouncing this reporting as conspiracy theory. And the the one thing that we were sure of is that whatever this was, this project was going to be temporary. Like it was going to be shut down one way or the other. We just didn't know what from what angle that would happen. Uh, but I was a little concerned for sure for the first time, I would say. And what sort of um, backlash did you guys get? Did anyone have any other... You specifically, but I think others kind of experienced a little bit of a taste of what it looks like when when the government is displeased with you. Yeah. Well, I had a really odd incident when uh, you know I testified uh, before Jim jo- uh, Jim Jordan's Weaponization Government Committee, and while I was testifying, the IRS actually visited my house. Uh, they was, was that concurrent? I, I thought it was the day after. It was the same day that you were doing it. It was while I was testifying. Yeah, I'm sure that was an accident, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what are the chances of that? But I thought it act, I, I thought it was too ridiculous to be, you know, related. And I, I, I told the committee only because I thought it would be irresponsible not to. Like, it's potential witness intimidation. I, I had to let them know. I didn't say anything until we got information back from the Treasury about what that was about. And they had opened the case um, on Christmas Eve of uh, 2022, which was a Saturday and the day that we dropped probably the scariest Twitter file story, which was about the FBI, DHS, even the CIA uh, being involved in this content flogging operation. So that made me nervous. I mean, for the first time, Uh, some of the, uh, you know, I think there have been some hints behind the scenes. Maybe Elon uh, heard some things that you know, from people in the government or, you know, connected to government about displeasure that they were having with these reports. So, yeah, we all were a little bit nervous. Also, by the way, we discovered that the former general counsel of the FBI vetted the first Twitter files without our knowledge. So um, he was still working at Twitter at the time, Jim Baker. So that was odd. But, you know, again, none of us had any experience with this kind of situation. So we don't, we don't know really what went on behind the scenes absolutely uh, lest anyone think otherwise feds don't generally work on saturdays they don't open cases on christmas eve this is a a decidedly unfederal thing to do so uh, a little bit of concern at least would be rest i think totally relevant in this case we're going to uh, take a quick break we're going to come back and i want to kind of wrap up the story so you guys understand exactly what that apparatus looked like and uh, how it came into play so we'll do that in just one second Folks, when I was on the set of Police State with Debbie and Dinesh, I noticed that they are on a great health journey and they're struggling always to eat fruits and vegetables and fiber when you're as busy as they are. It's very difficult to do it. Lucky for them, they discovered the balance of nature and what better way to get all of your fruits and veggies plus fiber than balance of nature. Balance of nature. 
fruits and vegetables. They're made from fresh, whole produce. Their produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrient content. And then Bowels of Nature Fiber and Spice add a proprietary blends of both fiber and 12 spices for overall digestive health. So, like Debbie and Dinesh, you can start your journey to better health right now. You can call 1-800-2468-751. Again, that's 1-800-2468-751. Or go to balanceofnature.com. Get 35% off your first preferred order by using the discount code America. That's a good one to remember. America. How how easy. Again, that's balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751 and get 35% off. 35% off. That sounds like a deal. You're losing money if you don't buy it. From your first preferred order using discount code America. Go ahead. Check it out. All right, we're back with Matt Taibbi. We're going to be talking a little bit. I want to sew this story up for people to understand it. I think the job of a journalist oftentimes is taking all the files that you go through. You got accused of curating a narrative. That's actually the job is what is what does all this stuff mean? Like having a bunch of data is useless. So maybe you can tell people the story. What what did the Twitter files unveil and what did that mechanism look like? I think the, the top line headline is that the government, the federal government is involved in a massive way in moderating content, I think that's a jet. That's the gentlest way of putting it. I would say there there's a huge federal censorship operation, and it involves not only the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, but a huge um, sort of galaxy of other organizations. There's the State Department has something called the Global Engagement Center. There's a number of organizations within the Pentagon that do this kind of work, and then they contract out to hundreds of other um, NGOs. Uh, there was a Twitter executive's joke that these were non-governmental organizations that weren't quite non-governmental. Um, there are hundreds of these operations out there that are getting government money, lots of it. And so I think that's the big revelation is that the government is involved in suppressing content at a, at a huge do you think it's more dangerous for the government to be out in the open saying this is state sponsored media and we're only going to tell you what we want you to hear and then you know it? Or is it more dangerous the way that we have it right now where you talk about non-governmental agencies that are government funded? They tend to be pretty governmenty then. Uh, is that a more dangerous sort of setup, you think? Oh, I think it's infinitely more dangerous, uh, the situation that we have now. And I, again, when I lived in the Soviet Union, nobody read newspapers and believed them. I mean, they, they used them to, to do stuff like, uh, you know, fill their jackets for extra lining when it got really cold, you know, to line the bottoms of bird cages and things like that. But nobody, like, read the papers leaving the stuff that was in there. The problem with the current situation is that we have this enormously manipulated version of reality that a lot of people don't know uh, has been altered in this enormous way. And... It involves not only removing things, but dialing them down. Uh, so there are people who think certain ideas are totally unpopular, where the reverse might be true. Other things might be um, actually very unpopular, but everybody sees those tweets anyway, uh, or those posts, because they're amplified. So it's it's a distortion of reality at, at a fundamental level. It's, I think the Soviets would have... Uh, drop to their knees in gratitude to have tools like this and and uh and not be able for for the public to not be able to detect to detect it as a key element of the whole thing if i'm if i'm gathering this correctly it sounds like people have a, an impression that the algorithms are basically fundamentally fair and they're just going to serve up information as it is organically uh interesting to them and to the public so if it's a high you know high viewed tweet that must mean that a lot of people are interested in it being able to curate that on the back end, that's the real, the magic is kind of what you're saying is that they're, they're, they're boosting the people and the signals they want, and they're turning down the signals that might otherwise to give people a false view of reality. Yeah. They, they use algorithms that are, um, oddly enough, similar from what I was told to the algorithms that they use to, uh, decide which people to drone overseas. So, uh, you have point, point scoring systems, uh, you know, Overseas, if it's a military-age male walking outside, has four telephone numbers with the the wrong people in his contact list and is carrying something that looks like it might be a weapon, 
um, you know, that might put you over the edge if you count up all those points. Well, what happens online is, you know, person follows the wrong account, once retweeted RT, uh, you know, retweeted a Trump account about this or that, was deemed to have once uh, said something that some organization said was incorrect. Suddenly they're deamplified, but actually they, they might have no connection to any foreign government or be, even be incorrect. We, we found scientists from Stanford and Harvard who, you know, had published peer reviewed studies who had been deamplified just because the, the government disagreed with their uh, opinions about government policy. Uh, so, yeah, th- that's exactly as you describe, and it's very dangerous, I think. So we're on Dinesh D'Souza's podcast, and this is his, you know, he, he recently came out with a, a movie called Police State, which I was a part of. And I think it's been sort of cast as a, a right-wing narrative, a right-wing issue. Do you see government censorship and sort of the apparatus that allows a lot of these sort of weaponized pieces of government to be a left or right issue at all? But it's it's certainly not a right-wing issue. I mean, this, this is part of the ongoing mystery for me. I, I mean, I grew up voting Democratic my whole life. I gave to the ACLU my whole life. I was raised to believe that free speech was a fundamental uh, issue for American liberalism. Like, this this was the, the line you could never cross. Think about the Parents Music Resource Center, NWA, Robert Maplethorpe, Jerry Falwell, like, you know, all those things. This was the line you, you could never cross. And as recently as the Bush years, it was the animating issue civil liberties was for uh, people on the left, that and being opposed to war. So suddenly, after Trump got elected, this issue codes as a right-wing issue in media. And I was, the the Washington Post actually called me conservative journalist Matt Taibbi before (laughs) silently editing it a few few hours later, uh, because it's the propaganda mechanism that they're using to dismiss this issue. It's not a right-wing issue. It's a it's an American issue. The First Amendment is first for a reason. It's the it's the core principle of our society, and they're violating it on a huge scale, and they're trying to get away with it by, you know, calling it a fringe right-wing issue. If you could measure your surprise finding what you found in the Twitter files versus the way that it was received by the political left and people that have sort of bought that narrative, which one is more surprising that you, as far as categorization? Wow, it's it's pretty close. the The shock of finding the stuff was um, was pretty intense, but the ongoing uh, inability of people to register what it is that the story is about, or their refusal uh, to even consider some of the evidence, that actually has been a little bit more surprising. I mean, it, we've seen a lot a lot of this in the Trump years, you know, with stories like RussiaGate, where even very experienced reporters just had a really hard time grappling with the fact that there was nothing there. Uh, but this is a this is a worse thing, and uh, you know, th- there's nobody left in the Democratic Party who cares about this issue anymore. So uh, that has been a shock and a disappointment for sure. It seems like you and some of your partners doing the Twitter files are kind of in this politically homeless space where you're sort of ideologically on the on the liberal side of things. You lean center left ish at the very minimum, and and that you feel you know, free speech is worth fighting for. And then you're being shunned by the parties and and sort of the political groups that would otherwise be your natural allies, one would think. It's weird for me. Like I grew up and I I can't believe that we're dealing with this. Where does this country go from this weird tribal situation? Do you see any kind of analogs in history that we can look at and say, this is how it's going to work out? No, I I mean, in the American context, I can't think of anything. I mean, it's a little bit like the Red Scare years, I I would say, uh, where you know, they're really using a technique where it's just in-group, out-group. So, uh, you know, there was a, a famous sort of Nazi philo- uh, jurist named Carl Schmidt, who was actually influential with some of the war on terror neoconservative types. Uh, and his whole idea was this friend-enemy distinction, that it was more important to categorize people uh, in terms of whether they were hostile to the state or not um, in an emergency as opposed to left, right, or anything else. And I think that's where we are. We're in this kind of friend and foe place where people like you and me are just sort of thrown together in, in one group. And people who are still, you know, technically allowed to 
you know, be p- part of the mainstream conversation. They're very, they're terrified to take one step out, um, you know, to, to dip a toe in the lake of uh, unorthodoxy because they don't want to end up on the outside. And that's, that's where we are now, I think. I, I just don't know how to fix it. That's the problem. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think because, you know, even stuff like the, the the issues that you've talked about before, you know, with the FBI, um, this idea of, you know, sort of ongoing investigations without predicate. Uh, this used to be, like, not that long ago, a very serious concern on the left. And we just we hear nothing about it now. It, it, yeah, and, it, and it does seem like it should still be a concern, because if anybody thinks that the left is not targeted to, the, the FBI is not mastered by ideology it's mastered by budget which is what we know about government it's about money and it's about power and so yeah it's very strange in fact they were targeting of blm you know activists and people who would be the antithet you know the anti- antithesis rather of uh, people on the political right and we just see them yeah they, they've just been swept under the rug and they're like wow oh, those are just casualties of it so it's very strange to to see it um also interesting you mentioned the uh the red scare it doesn't matter whether you go back to palmer raids or any time that it always turns out that that government weaponized against the citizenship, particularly in the speech realm, is super weird. So, well, it's it's not exactly heartening that uh, neither of us have a good answer of it, but it does seem like self-censorship is the enemy. That was what you saw in the Soviet Union, from what I'm hearing. And so maybe just the continuing speaking, where can people, because we could do this for probably 10 or 12 hours, you and me, and if we need some beers and we could keep going. But what? Um, where can people find more of the work? We talked about the uh, Substack. Maybe you plug it for them and let people know where to follow you and, and sign up. Sure. I'm at uh, www.racket.news. Um, the other Twitter files reporters, there's uh, Barry Weiss at thefreepress.com. Um, and Michael Schellenberger is at a site called Public on Substack. Uh, you know, we were the three who were there. Lee Fong was another one. He has his own site on Substack as well. And we're all kind of doing the same stuff. So, um, you know, come check out, uh, you know, any of those sites at any time. And uh, Kyle, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, I enjoyed it. People put your toe in the water and, uh, you know, maybe get yourself on a watch list. It's always fun. Uh, that's what I've started calling people that watch whatever I'm doing. Uh, Matt, you're the best. Thanks for joining us. And I look forward to hearing more of what you got coming up in 2024. Absolutely. See you soon. Thanks, bud. Folks, as you know, Mike Lindell, who is no friend of the FBI, it turns out, just like me, has a passion to help everyone to get the best sleep of your life. He didn't just simply start by creating the best pillow. He actually created the Giza Dream Sheets. A bed sheet that look and feel great means that even an even better night's sleep, which is critical, especially if you're on a busy schedule like me, I'm lucky to get any sleep. I've got a new baby, folks. I'll just tell you what it is. Mike found the world's best cotton. It's called Giza. It's an ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable cotton. His Giza Dream Sheets come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. I know people that have actually tried out uh, the uh, the Send It Back, and they've actually got it. Mike is a great guy for this sort of thing. The Giza Dream Sheets come in a variety of colors and sizes. Mike's incredible deals will be the sale of the year. For a limited time, you'll receive 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets and you'll receive a set for as low as $29.98. They're almost giving them away. Go to MyPillow.com and use promo code Dinesh, that's D-I-N-E-S-H, or call 1-800-876-0227 and you'll get huge discounts on all the MyPillow bedding products. Again, MyPillow.com, promo code Dinesh. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I could sit and talk to Matt Taibbi for hours. And like I said, I probably would need a beer or coffee, one of the two, or maybe both. And we could just keep doing that. I want to give you guys a little sense of what's going on in the world and maybe where the light and dark. We're in a battle right now. A lot of times we could see it as a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle has ups and downs like many. There are a couple of them that have come out in the last couple of days. And as we unplugged from the news cycle and spent time with our families and were able to take a deep breath and hopefully understand the meaning for this Christmas season, uh, I want to share with you a couple of threats that have been out there that we've been aware of and maybe some points of light as well. So the light and the dark, which is really what the season is about. In fact, the reason that we chose this particular time of year to celebrate Christmas is the winter solstice. It actually fits on a pagan holiday where they talk about the the light starting to win over the dark. And so that's a, a good place to kind of end today on the second day of Christmas. For those of you who keep track of it, there are 12 of them on purpose. It goes all the way up to the gift of the Magi showing up. So let's talk about a few things. Number one, um, there was a, a significant terrorist warning that was going out across Europe that Catholic churches and traditional houses of Christian worship were going to be targeted by Islamic fundamentalists and extremists who were going to destroy or interrupt services. And the good news is that that didn't happen. So that's part one. 
there's a thread that continues to do. And the way that terrorists actually move the needle is by getting people to act in a certain way based on either threats or actions. And the threats didn't stop people from going to mass and from going to celebrate the Christmas season the way they're supposed to. And it also didn't stop, you know, it didn't stop people from gathering and having their holidays the way you'd expect. So that's a good point of light where we look at it. And there's a, there's several of these that are going on. Now, there's a couple of bad things as well, because what we saw was tremendous amounts of unrest in the city of New York. This was happening in some other big urban areas where we see continuous pro-Hamas, pro-Palestine type um, organizations. People are going out there. They're getting arrested. They're fighting with police officers. They are trying to tilt the meaning of it. This is the other thing we see the progressive left do over and over again is co-opt symbols. They learned it from the best folks. If you don't know this, if you go back into the history of the Catholic Church and even uh, broadly the Christian missionaries, they've always used symbols that made sense to people on the ground and they've used it to to put their message forward. It turns out to be a very effective way of sort of lining up uh, the way that people's um, their frameworks for viewing the world. And so when we see them walking around through New York, and they've got a Madonna, the Virgin Mary, and and a baby, and they've got a Palestinian flag draped over on it. It's pretty heavy-handed for those of us who are paying attention that this is what propaganda really looks like. But there are these things going on. But it's not all bad news because, like I said, the threat of 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 terrorism didn't materialize itself. What did come up is a couple of fantastic victories. I think for both free speech, which should be a nonpartisan, nonpolitical thing, the way that I just talked to Matt Taibbi about. There was a victory in the court case for three pro-life students who attended the pro-life march in January of this year. And then they went afterwards to the National Archives Museum. And as they walked around through the National Archives Museum, they took pictures in front of things like the Constitution. They were wearing pro-life shirts and pins and hats. And they were told that they had to either cover them up or take them off by security guards who are known as police officers. They're special police jurisdictions in Washington, D.C. They were told to take them off because those were considered offensive by the guards not by policy. And the scariest thing is, is that if you're going to censor any type of speech, then all speech is on the docket. And this is really what we were just talking to Matt about. It isn't a left or a right issue. It's an issue of either you can express yourself and the best ideas win, or the government comes in and tries to pick winners and losers. That's what the Twitter files was about. Manipulating the narrative, picking winners and losers. And so the upside is, is that the National Archives Museum just settled with these three students for not a lot of money, for $10,000, which is our money, by the way. That's our taxpayer dollars. We're paying. But what it also said was that they had to introduce new training for these otherwise political actors working under the federal government's auspices, and they have to abide by the standards of the First Amendment. And that actually is a win, because if we don't see these things happening, we don't know where they are. And so luckily, these individuals decided to push forward with a court case which is not very much fun and usually costs a lot of money. And they probably didn't even break even with the $10,000, if we're being honest. And yet, it's a win for free speech because whether you have a pro-abortion or a pro-life shirt on, if you walk through things that we all pay for on the National Mall, whether it be the Smithsonian or the National Archives or anywhere else, even through the halls of Congress, there's no government agency that should be coming in and trying to push you on that. There's also another victory that happened in a court case against Pornhub, now, Pornhub has is, is been under fire. Members of Project Veritas have stepped forward and they have actually formed a new group outside of James O'Keefe's purview. And they are they are doing investigative journalism showing that a lot of it involves child pornography, which means that these companies are profiting from one of the most evil things that can happen. And the good news is, is that a judge in uh, Alabama just certified them as a class and said that a class of people, which means you can spread the cost and you can spread the, the proceeds and you can also spread the pattern of facts to a multitude of victims. They've just been certified. It's the first hurdle in being able to hold people who are doing evil accountable. And so luckily in this season of light versus dark, we're seeing that there is, in fact, movement, even in our federal court system, which many of us are looking at and saying, you know, is there any justice, whether it be for J Sixers, whether it be because of the mechanized apparatus of the police state working from the enforcement end, my old girlfriend, the FBI. Um, who I always liken to kind of a psycho ex-girlfriend. She just kind of burned all my stuff in the front yard and <laughs> threw me out. But when we look at these these critters that are out there operating, they're not all victorious. And so there are still people pushing back. Some of the system still works. That's why we don't advocate abandoning the American principles. The key is to fight for them and to fight for them in a peaceful and organized way and say, we also have to highlight the good news. Because if you did nothing but bad news, you could literally just sit and uh, stew and never want to leave your home. And that's not what the season is about either. And lastly, and most interestingly enough, 
I think a sign of at least some of the battle being won is that people who are living in Democrat strongholds that are pushing some of the most ridiculous and dangerous political rhetoric and ideologies that are so radical and antithetical to American history, which is simply just accepting your neighbors for whatever they want to do, as long as they don't infringe on yours. That's the basic sort of libertarian mindset. And they're abandoning New York's and California's in droves. They're leaving. Newsweek just reported that populations in those big states are decreasing and they are going to red areas, not because they even necessarily agree with what's going on in the red area politics, but they know that they could be left alone to either worship or not worship as they so choose to speak, whether it's favored or not favored speech, because a government that doesn't weigh in on it is preferable to a government that's trying to pick winners and losers. So we're seeing this trend happening right now in real time. We're probably halftime in this ugly game, which is why 2024 is going to be such an interesting year to watch, both as a political commentator and as someone who's experiencing it. So don't pull your head out of the game right now. We're just about to get started. I look forward to seeing you guys all for the rest of this week as we talk about some of this weaponized government. If you don't know, you can't be forearmed. If you're not forewarned, you won't know what's coming your way. And that's the reason why the movie Police State was so important. It's the reason why a lot of these these voices you're going to be hearing, we're going to be talking to conservative journalist Tracy Beans, who is an independent, who's going to cover down on Missouri versus Biden. So you should look forward to that. We're going to be talking about the government using um, government apparatus to do sex trafficking. And uh, we're going to bring in a couple of whistleblowers to talk about that. We're going to talk about a journalist who was literally targeted a violation of the First Amendment, I would think, but is now being targeted by the DOJ for his coverage of January 6th, simply interested in the truth. And he has a very nuanced take that if you think one side or the other was 100% right or wrong, I think you guys are going to want to stick around for that too. So enjoy us for the rest of this week. Again, you could follow me at Kyle Serafin on all social medias. It's very straightforward on True Social, on Instagram, and on uh, on Twitter, X, which I have a hard time calling X. And then uh, lastly, you can find us at rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Folks, I'm looking forward to spending this week with you, and I hope you have a wonderful and blessed day and a Merry Christmas on the second day. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.